Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Tom Statham, a longtime Manchester United Academy coach with U.S. Ties. We've had some great guests lately, including Caroline Graham Hansen, Matthew Hoppy, and Alejandro Iraragori. So check those out. But first, let's talk some soccer with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, the Dan Lebetard Show, and the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right, Grant. How are you, sir? Doing okay. Quite a soccer weekend. Chelsea won, Man City nil. Kai Havertz with a game winner. Christian Pulisic becomes the first U.S. men's national team player to play in and win the Champions League final. And Pep Guardiola missed out on another chance to win the Champions League. Your thoughts? Well, there, there's so many. Uh, my, my kind of prevailing thought was, so obviously there's two kind of decisions that were analyzed uh, with Pep, not playing a holding midfielder. And look, when the goal is scored because there's a gaping space in the middle of the pitch, it'd be nice if there was someone who was kind of accustomed to playing there. Um, and then the other was Kevin De Bruyne uh, playing up top and then eventually getting injured and coming off. That was kind of another talking point. Um, and Pep's decisions were analyzed. But I think that Chelsea might have handled City even if there was a holding midfielder and even if Kevin De Bruyne was playing somewhere else. They've got a formula. It's worked three times now. And we thought the first two times it was because City made all these changes after playing in, in Champions League and because they weren't taking the games that seriously. And you look at the lineups, you go, that's not going to reflect what the final is going to be like. And then the final played out in exactly the same way. And now you kind of wonder if Thomas Tuchel has established a blueprint to negate Pep Guardiola's style of play. Now, to be fair, Thomas Tuchel has negated most teams' style of play since he's taken over at Chelsea. His defensive kind of acumen is kind of underrated here. The The way that they've shut teams down is incredible. But I, I, I do think that in some ways in focusing the coverage around Pep and a lot of it, a lot of it has centered around Pep, it doesn't give Chelsea nearly enough credit for what they do to negate most of the teams that they come up against. I do think Chelsea deserves, I think that should be the, the, the storyline ahead of what Pep did, did or didn't do. Um, though we'll talk about that. You just did a little bit. You know, like what Tuchel's done to come in, Chelsea was in ninth place when he replaced Frank Lampard, didn't figure to be a team that was going to go deep into Champions League, couldn't really defend some wild score lines under Frank Lampard, who, by the way, let me just get this out of the way. I don't know if you can say it. I can say it. Why are people giving Frank Lampard credit for being part of this Chelsea win? They were bad under him. It, like in my opinion, the success that Tuchel's had with the exact same players that Frank Lampard had should be even more reason that Frank Lampard has difficulty finding his next job. Well, I, I do think like the the foundational element is what happens after Maurizio Sarri leaves and they're in a transfer ban and taking the club in a forward direction, at least in terms of, well, first off, I mean, Frank Lampard did lead them to a top four finish so they could even be in this Champions League. Uh, and then the other thing as well is Mason Mount, I don't know if we get to look in in quite the same way under a different coach at the beginning or if Reese James or some, some of these other young players that became part of the core get quite the same look in. But I agree, Thomas Tuchel took 
the team from one place and lifted them several levels above with the same players, right? You know, Chelsea had an inability to defend before Thomas Tuchel arrived. They all of a sudden had an ability to defend, and for me, the difference uh, was in coaching. So, yeah, I think Tuchel definitely took the team to another level. And N'Golo Kante, just tremendous in this game, I thought. Um, you know, and it was, it was pretty obvious to see. He's maybe not the same player he was four or five years ago, but still just covers a tremendous amount of ground, signature game for him, shows up in the big games, and just, I don't know, I kind of love N'Golo Conte. I think just personally, he's like a guy who makes me smile. Uh, but like <laughs> the the way he approached this, the way he played in this game, absolutely terrific. Um, prototype defensive midfielder against a team that didn't really play a defensive midfielder. It's kind of wild that Ilkay Gundogan, the leading scorer for Man City, ends up being their deepest midfielder in this game. And I think what was the stat was that Fernandinho or Rodri had started every game this season for Man City, one of them, except for two games. Yeah. So this is where... You know, I, I think you can question Guardiola a bit, which is uh, he has this reputation for overthinking in the big Champions League games, tinkering. And if you get a reputation as a tinkerer, you better be successful when you do the tinkering. And he hadn't really done much tinkering in previous Champions League games this season. He decides to do it for the final. And... I do feel like if you're a Man City player, I know you have a tremendous amount of belief in Guardiola for good reason, and you're probably not going to question it, but you're still playing in a very different way with different personnel than you have really all season. And I understand what Guardiola's thinking must have been, which was in these two previous losses to Chelsea – we did play one of those guys. It didn't go that well. To me, though, it, it's you, like you said earlier, they weren't playing with their best 11 in both of those games. And you have all of this evidence from Man City's previous games why it's important to have one of those guys in there. So I also think Tuchel's just really smart. You know, I thought there was a really good tactical analysis uh, in The Athletic by Michael Cox, who, who does great work, basically showing that even before the goal sequence, that Chelsea had run the same pattern out left to Chilwell, kind of over the top to him, two times. And it didn't actually work out perfectly on either occasion, but on the third time it did. And, and that's impressive. Uh, it shows a team that's well-drilled, that knows its roles. And I, I really am impressed with Tuchel and how, how he's changed this Chelsea team and how he prepares them. And, and I do think that Tuchel is probably similarly minded about tactics and about details and can probably overthink a team as well because he's so in the weeds on it. I guess the difference for me is I think he's on the right side of the line of understanding your opponent, preparing for your opponent, and kind of having things to counteract what they do versus I think Pep Guardiola just has a bit of paralysis by analysis. And I think you don't even have to look at lineup decisions. You can just kind of look at the 
ways in which Chelsea went about their work versus how Man City went about their work. I thought John Stones looked nervous. I thought yeah. the defending, for the most part, even at even when it was still nil-nil, was not terribly confident from a Manchester City point of view. They were kind of hanging on at times. Uh, and so I just think, like, you, you look at, for example, the fullbacks at Manchester City must get so many instructions because they're all over the place. At times, Alexander Zinchenko was the holding midfielder for Manchester City. He's coming in from left back. And, like, it seems as though Pep Guardiola has detail after detail after detail after detail. And I think at a certain point, you stop having an identity and you start basically just trying to execute these this coach's instructions. And it stops being the thing that makes you special, right? And I think the reason why so many people have a go at Pep for this is because Pep Guardiola has this incredibly strong team, the best team in England because they won the league, this team that can run riot in group stages and early knockout rounds and just all they have to do is show up, play their style of play, and they'll beat somebody. And then at the big occasion, it's like, well, we need to adjust to what they do or we need to you know, throw in some wrinkles. It's like, no, you have an identity, go execute it, and the likelihood is that it will be better than that other team's identity. Now, maybe because of the way that Chelsea defend, because of the, the, way, the, the things that you mentioned in terms of how Tuchel sets his team up to do their work, maybe it wouldn't have mattered. But at the same time, like, go go be you. Go be the best version of you. We know that week in, week out, it's good enough to win titles and probably win the Champions League. And the reason why it dominates the story is because it's now 10 years of this. It's been 10 years since he won the Champions League. And so every time he goes into one of these big games, it becomes a referendum on him as much as anybody else. You're right. Let's talk Christian Pulisic uh, does not start, which if we're being honest, wasn't entirely surprising, I guess. Um, does come on in the second half. Has a really good opportunity to score oh. and put the game away that he sends just wide. Um, and comes away with a Champions League winner's medal. And, uh, you know, I, I know that like hardcore soccer people here are like, why are you focusing so much CBS on the, the American? It's a historic moment for American soccer. But also, like, you don't think that, like, in Croatia, they talk a lot about Mateo Kovacic's role in a Champions League. You didn't, you didn't even start. But, like, in Italy, they're talking about Jorginho. And, like, it, the, you focus on the people who's who it's most pertinent to, right? The broadcast is in America. You're going to focus on Americans. That's not a crazy idea. I have no issues with the way CBS covered Pulisic or, or the, the occasion. Um and, and look, I mean, if you look at, at Pulisic's entire season, is there room for him to improve? Yes, of course there is in the Premier League. Uh, you, and you hope that he gets a handle on his injuries uh, as time goes on and is able to establish some consistency. But I still admire the way he approached the last several weeks of the season. Was he perfect? No, he wasn't, but he did score a couple of big goals. He did make a contribution in big games. And now he's been part of a team that's won the biggest game of all. And I would say, here's something I like about Champions League in recent years especially, is it feels more unpredictable because it's a knockout competition than the domestic leagues. And I kind of like the fact that the two teams that spend the most, Man City and PSG, haven't won a Champions League title yet. Yeah. 
you know, they've come close. They got to the final each of the last two years. Obviously, Real Madrid has spent a lot of money and they've won Champions Leagues in recent years, but they don't win every year. Barcelona doesn't win every year. And, and you know, that was a terrific Bayern team that won last year, but Bayern certainly doesn't spend the most of any club in Europe. Liverpool doesn't either, by the way. So I think there's something that I like about Champions League and some of the unpredictability that comes from there not being as big of a sample size. And I, I certainly don't want to characterize Chelsea as some upstart <laughs> because it's owned <laughs> by Roman Abramovich. But but still, I, I like the unpredictability is my point. Yeah, and I think the way that the Champions League being a knockout tournament works is that it's really, it, it, on any day, anyone can win. And yet, I do think the stat that went around that no first-time Champions League final appearance maker has won it since 97 and Borussia Dortmund and the last seven that have gone to the final for the first time have lost is a real thing. Like, it is kind of a legacy, tra- like a, a legacy traditional competition in a weird way where you kind of have to have won it in order to win it and breaking into that hegemony is really hard. Like, breaking into that group of teams that can win it and that's why, like, the Manchester City story is one of suffering in that competition. They have to kind of build the callus of being ready to go and win, and clearly they aren't yet. Now we can talk about kind of the the, the Pep aspect to it. I mean, Pep has said, even as they've you know t- taken a hundred points in the Premier League, we're not ready to win the Champions League. Now you can say that's excuse making, but I think one of the things that he said, he did an interview with Rio Ferdinand that I thought was really interesting, which is like, I hope that my legacy at this club is that there is no such thing as a friendly match for Manchester City. We've got to win every game and we have to expect to win every game. And that he didn't know when he arrived that that mentality existed. Now they'd obviously won a bunch before he arrived, but he didn't know if it was quite as intense as it needed to be. And quite as, you know, in a bubble at times as you know working at Real Madrid or Barcelona is where you're two games away from a crisis and some of that is fan pressure some of that is media pressure but like it is really hard to kind of develop what it requires to be that kind of big club and that's why there's only like nine of them yeah I, it's still crazy to me that Pep Guardiola probably viewed as the greatest manager of this century to this point I would think um has has gone to Bayern Munich and has not won a Champions League there despite winning the the German League multiple times and has now gone to Man City and won several league titles but has yet to win the Champions League and that's wild to me and and I, I'm just curious to see you know will he ever get there is this a real you know there's no way of knowing for sure is this really a mental break for him you know or issue for him does this impact some of the decisions the curious ones especially that he's made uh when it comes to champions league but uh i will say this chelsea deserved this win you yeah. know like I, I i didn't feel like I, now even before they scored the goal early in the game i was saying to the people i was watching with oh this feels good for chelsea for me yeah. just the way this is going yeah, I mean the the two the two chances that came for Timo Werner probably could have put one of those away. I mean, like the only confidence you drew from a City fan point point of view is that this Chelsea team doesn't finish their chances. Like they're actually they create a lot of good opportunities. You look at their XG numbers uh, over the course of of the last few months. 
they're really good in terms of not allowing chances and creating ones of their own. They're like over 2xG like seven, eight times in the last couple of months, and yet they rarely hit for big numbers in terms of goals scored in the game because they just don't have that finishing ability. So the only thing you're hoping for is, well, it's just another bad Chelsea finishing day, and when it comes time for Man City to get a chance, they'll put one away. But didn't have that many is kind of the issue. And when they did, it kind of heroic blocks in from really all three of the center backs, Christensen, Rudiger, and Espeliqueta all had their moments to really deny Man City a, a, a good opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, Chelsea from the off, I thought were the better team. And that's why I think like a little bit of the focus on the tactics is a little bit overdone because you just watch the game. And if you don't, if, if you don't know which team was better going in or which team was favored or which team had the famous manager, or which team, which team was building to this for four years as opposed to four months, you would have thought Chelsea were the better team. And that's why you play the games. It's it's not about, you know, what, what, what every team's pedigree is or what their coach's pedigree is. It's who's better on the day. And Chelsea were just flatly better on the day. Yeah. Hats off to Chelsea. Uh, really impressive win the champions league final let's move on to u.s men's national team loses 2-1 at switzerland on sunday sebastian legette puts the u.s up early switzerland comes back takes advantage of poor u.s defending especially in the second half and wins 2-1 could have been worse actually i think yeah uh, on the score line what were your thoughts yeah i mean first off completely agree that it, it could have and probably should have been worse uh the switzerland left back ricardo rodriguez missed a penalty uh there were several other chances brio limbolo on a different day uh, could have had two or three he was sensational and tormented that u.s men's national team left um First off, I mean, in the, in the first half, I actually thought the U.S. were better in terms of how they were going forward. Love the performance again of Brendan Aronson, like him starting from the left. Um, just kind of a, a few observations. One, without Tyler Adams, they they really struggle for cover in defensive midfield. Like the drop yep. off from one to two and holding midfield is profound. They're going to have to find someone in that position who can pass at the level that Greg Berhalter clearly wants his holding mid to be able to pass and also cover ground because... For me, the spaces today, for example, the first goal comes from, I think, some really good U.S. pressure in the forward line, but a ball kind of bounces in a weird area. Sebastian Legette quite can't quite get there, and you look at the gap between where Legette is pressing from in the in the Switzerland you know, defensive third and where John Brooks is a little bit beyond the halfway line. There's nothing in between, and so there's this huge gap that Switzerland exploits to go and get that first goal, and so having no Adams there is a real concern for me. He's got to be healthy almost more than Pulisic has to be healthy. Uh, the other thing that kind of worries me is I think in the first 65 minutes in particular the U.S. is very narrow and when you look at Brendan Aronson he likes to cut inside as more of an inverted winger than an out-and-out winger you look at uh, Giovanni Reyna he's not really an out-and-out winger he's kind of a creative player that also likes to cut inside Reggie Cannon I don't think offers enough in the attack to really be considered a threat from wide areas and Sergio Dest playing at left back doesn't really offer he also is going to want to cut inside and get involved in the play and you look at all of a sudden the U.S. attack and it's kind of in the width of the 18-yard box there's not really anything going on in wide areas and I actually thought that when DeAndre Yedlin came in, came on late in the game I was like okay this is the kind of width that they need but they kind of need a bit more of that Christian Pulisic as a natural winger will help solve that issue um, but I think that's one of the things that you lose when you play Sergio Dest at left back which I've never loved is that natural width that Dest can provide going forward from right back yeah and let's be honest here and Dest was part of this there was some really chaotic defending in yeah. the second half in particular where um just just not good not good enough and it, it wasn't just the goals that were conceded it was in the chances Horvath actually made a couple of nice saves on yeah. Mbolo 
Um, and we've seen this a few times with Dest. I love what he brings from the attacking perspective. And he had a couple of great sauce moments in this game, um, including a move in the, the penalty box that gave him a real opportunity on goal. But we saw a, a similar play, like defensive gaff, essentially, from Dest that led to one of the goals that we've seen a couple of times with Barcelona this season as well. And I think you just need to understand if you're the the U.S. back line, especially the center back on the left side, and he's on that left side, you're going to have to cover for, for Dest, especially if Tyler Adams isn't in there to cover as well. And, and there did seem to be a lot of open spaces. John Brooks seemed like, to me at least, if he ever gets pulled out, that's not a good sign of things to come. And, and literally once Brooks was subbed off, Tim Ream comes on and was pretty awful, I thought. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I a, like Tim Ream as a, as a guy, but like I, I don't quite understand why he's still there. Um, well, I mean, it's because of the shortage of center back options. And, and we probably... You know, when Aaron Long gets hurt, like, I think if, if a European, like, if John Brooks tours ACL, we, like, we would have been talking about it. But because it's Aaron Long in MLS, it's not the same thing. I, and you talk, and it's kind of a chain reaction, right? If Desk gets pulled out and John Brooks gets pulled out, there's got to be someone there to kind of put out that fire. It's a lot to ask of Mark McKenzie kind of so young into his U.S. men's national team career. And I still thought he played a decent game. He was but okay. Aaron Long, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like, Aaron Long is used to that role. He's used to kind of covering, uh, you know, a, 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 along that U.S. back line. And I think you saw today... You know, the U.S. was trying to be gung-ho away from home in Europe against a top-20 side in the world that has some real quality in it, and exposing yourself with forward pressing without really being able to coordinate it every week, every week, every week, like I imagine Greg Berhalter would like to, that's where you see the weaknesses of it. Is As the game goes on, as you expose yourself more, you're really leaving yourself vulnerable to giving away chances. True. I also think it would have been nice if Chris Richards had been healthy. I'm curious yeah. to know if he might have gotten the start instead of McKenzie. But like you said, I thought McKenzie was fine, actually. Yeah. And I'd like to see him get continue to get opportunities. Um, and I thought that the, actually, I felt like the front line for the U.S. defended in some ways better than the back line in this game. I liked some of the high pressure that we saw where the U.S. won the ball deep in the Swiss end. That's how the first goal got created. But there were other moments and other chances that were created. And if Greg Berhalter is going to start really doing this on a regular basis, I kind of like that. I, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, I think that's why, like, Josh Sargent gets the starts in these games because he puts in that shift. Him and Brendan Aronson, I thought, were exceptional. Gio Reyna is obviously used to doing some work uh, from an attacking point of view. I think with Pulisic in there and with Tyler Adams as well, kind of marshalling it, it will give McKenny and Legette more license to get in there. I think Yunus Musa, like the U.S., I think always, like in some ways, you know, people talked about their identity kind of being this team that was always strong defensively, can keep a shape, was very athletic. In some ways, the U.S. and in theory, the archetypal U.S. athlete was kind of born to be a pressing team. Like, it yeah. makes sense that the U.S., given that their strength has always kind of been their athleticism, it's kind of always meant to be a pressing team. So, and I think at times, like, there was one moment where, like, I was literally, like, I was I was walking around my apartment and I was off my feet and you can just see, like, the, I'm, like, waving at my television, like, go, go! And, like, the, I think they forced, uh, first off, the, the Swiss keeper, Jan Sommer, had a couple of uncomfortable moments at the back. <laughs> and, like, they, they forced him to be young. And he's a great keeper. Um, but, like, the Swiss defense was uncomfortable at times. And that's something, like, from a U.S. perspective, I, first off, I just like clean passing. Like, I, I, it's funny. I, I remember uh, John Oliver when it was really dire for, for Liverpool 
before they before Jurgen Klopp took over and the Rodgers regime and, and some of the previous regimes, he said, I just want to see Liverpool be a clean passing team. Is that so much to ask for? And I feel that way sometimes about the U.S., and we got it today. But even beyond that, like, when they can impose themselves in an identity upon another team, I think that's so cool because the U.S., I think, has struggled for years, even when they've been successful at times, to impose themselves upon other teams. And the fact that they did at times against Switzerland was fun to watch. It's just on the back end of it, it leaves your defense exposed. And if you don't have the right personnel, it can look like it did today. I'm pretty fired up to see these Nations League uh, semis and final this week because you've got the USA team I know it's Nations League and it's not like a traditional trophy or anything, but you've got, you know, teams are bringing their their guys. You know, it's maybe, you know, maybe Mexico not quite as much of an A team as we're getting with the U.S., but Pulisic's going to come, Stefan's going to come, and it's being played at altitude in Denver, but this looked like a U.S. team that actually was pretty fit today and able to, to continue pressing. So, like, I feel... I'm I'm pretty excited about seeing what happens this week with in in what to be honest is kind of a low stakes situation if you look at it in the big picture, but you'd like to see this U.S. team get the fans excited by performing well with a trophy on the line, and if you do get the opportunity against Mexico in a final, um, to make a statement. Yeah, and that I think is the idea behind what this Nations League final is being treated as. First off, you have kind of the, the friendly at the beginning, a long bit of travel, and then, and like, Greg Berhalter's clearly trying to, st- you know, simulate even perhaps even an at-altitude experience because, you know, you're going to have to go away at the Azteca, and that's another altitude experience. So you kind of want to get a bunch of European players that don't normally play under these conditions used to that. So I think it, it's a useful exercise. And anytime you can play a competitive game against Mexico, and it most importantly is on the calendar of your European-based players, right? That right. they can get their full summer, not participate in the Gold Cup, but still kind of get this experience. I think it's going to be really valuable for the U.S. to get back in front of a crowd, to get back. And really for the first time since this generation of players really came through in earnest. I mean, it's actually been an alarmingly different cycle for this national team since Gold Cup 2019. And remember kind of the aftermath of not just that they lost, but how they lost. I'm sure, like, I'm going to go back and right now look at the team that started that day, and I feel like there's going to be some differences, some notable ones between how they line up and how they play two years on. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, One last thing I want to talk about here, and... It's about Inter-Miami, and you work for Inter-Miami, so I realize there's not going to be a heck of a lot uh, you can say about some of this stuff. I will ask you a question in a second, though, but it's big news in MLS this week. On Friday, in a wonderful late Friday news dump, uh, MLS releases the the punishments for Inter-Miami, says that they ended up having five designated players instead of the maximum of three Uh Un, what's the best way to put it? They were paying guys even more than they said they were in other cases. Uh, $2 million fine for the team, $250,000 fine for owner, owner Jorge Mas, significant in excess of $2 million in uh, general allocation money losses the next two seasons. And Paul McDonough, the former sporting director who was who had moved on to Atlanta, suspended from any job in MLS until the end of 2022. So I'm going to take this one here. Um, few thoughts on my on my side. One, incredible amount of cheating to produce a bad team last season. You had a team that I think finished 10th in the East. 
uh, was not fun to watch for the most part. And just that amount of cheating is, is remarkable uh, that that happened and they actually weren't very good. Uh, Paul McDonough, a guy who, by the way, helped build Atlanta as an expansion team and Orlando for that matter uh, over the years. Uh, we'll talk more about him in a second. Um, I also tweeted this. It's bad what Miami has done here and truly embarrassing for everybody involved you know, in that organization. But I think I should say this. I still would rather have ambitious owners like those of Inter-Miami and MLS than completely unambitious owners who are never going to break any rules because they're not even going to spend near the salary cap limit, you know, or have designated players or all three of them. So Stan Kroenke and the Colorado Rapids, I'm looking at you, even though I acknowledge that Colorado's gotten off to a pretty good start. It's not because of Stan Kroenke and his spending and ambition. Um, you know, even other teams in this league uh, that should spend more, should have owners who care more. Um, and I just think it's it's worth keeping that in mind. Do we want cheating? No, we don't want cheating. But ambition we do want, uh, and it's not everywhere. Uh, the question I would have for you, I guess, is how tough is this going to actually be for Inter-Miami now moving forward given these sanctions? Yeah, I, I think the allocation money is probably the one that from an on-field perspective is the most difficult one to handle um, because right now they, they are kind of at the ceiling of spending in Major League Soccer. And I, I, I honestly, like, I wish I knew how it works. I wish I knew, like, you know, how much does allocation money that you've spent roll over into next year? Or all of a sudden, like, are Inter-Miami already in the red for next season? Or, like, do you, is, is allocation money something you get added to every year? Like, I genuinely don't know how it works, and I kind of wish that we did so we can kind of have a clearer picture. But what it basically does is what MLS has done with allocation money is allowed you to strengthen the middle of your roster, kind of positions 4 to 10. And so you look at that group of players right now, and all of a sudden, you're thinking, you know, they, they, the, the best bit of business that they've done so far is signing Lewis Morgan from Celtic, who was probably their team MVP last year. He's one of the best newcomers into MLS at like five goals and nine assists. Really good player. Is he all of a sudden a player that you have to sell in order to kind of finance the rest of your roster? Um, can you, you know, if he went, even replace him suitably? And so what it really does is place a lot of burden on Chris Henderson, who... I feel bad for like I, I feel bad that he you know like this is his first job he's very good at what he does I've had the chance to meet him really nice guy really smart really good at his job and he's got a job on his hands because in some ways he's kind of going to be man managing or general managing in the MLS of like 2014 where you had some DP players but you had to figure out the rest of your roster and it becomes even harder when there's next year going to be 28 teams in the league all vying from the same pool of players so it's going to be a really hard job from him and what it requires is maybe all of a sudden a leap from academy players. I know it's a young academy, but you know they, they have signed a couple, they've signed three players to homegrown deals. Maybe they've got to play more. You kind of got to nail your college draft pick. You have to nail your DPs, that's for sure, uh, which is not something that, that they've gotten enough from in terms of production from DPs. So yeah, I, my kind of prevailing feeling was how difficult the job is going to be the next couple of years without this money because it has allowed teams to lift the middle of their roster. And if Inter-Miami can't do that, then it's going to be really difficult for them to compete at a high level. Certainly an interesting story early in the season. And 
And look, Miami's going to have to start winning some games or, or the heat's going to get fairly significant because if you say you have big aspirations in a place like Miami and you don't produce, your fans are going to boo you and, and you're going to catch heat. So I do know I'll keep watching uh, because I, I find it interesting. Uh, and in a sense, uh, that ability is something that a bunch of other MLS teams sure wouldn't mind to have. Um, but that's about it, I guess, from from my end on that. Anything else on your mind in the soccer world? So I went back and looked at that uh, that Gold Cup final uh, from 2019. So here's the starting lineup from that day. Stefan and goal, Cannon, Miazga, Long, Ream. None of those guys will probably start a big Nations League game here. Obviously, Long, long only because he's hurt. Uh, McKinney. Cannamine. Right, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 no, you're right. McKinney and Bradley were kind of the holding midfield. Uh, Bradley, I think his days probably with the U.S. men's national team are over. Um, and then uh, a, a line of three in behind the striker of Morris, Pul- uh, Jordan Morris, Pulisic, Ariola. I think Morris, if he didn't get hurt, probably would figure. I don't know if Paul Ariola would. And Josie Altador up top. So that's like six or seven guys that probably like are not even just like n- not not they're just not a part of the fold. Never mind, going to be a part of this squad. Yeah, changes have, have happened, and and we'll see how this goes here. Um, you know, it's funny to hear Josie Altador's name, which had still been sort of thrown out there as a guy who could be in the running for the, the number nine starting position, not involved in this camp. And actually at club level now, according to Jeff Carlisle's report for ESPN, training away from the team after a blow up with Chris Armas, the, the TFC coach. So, um, curious to see what happens with Josie Altador. Yeah. I mean, you look at his you know, seasons with Toronto, he doesn't really play that much. Like, like even, even like the best Toronto teams, I mean, Josie's always struggled for fitness. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of skill set, he probably should be figuring into the picture. It's just, he struggles for fitness so much. And now his club situation doesn't appear to be getting any better. There was kind of talk that he wanted to go back to Spain. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, that's probably a story that should be monitored. Uh, like, and, and probably if not for the Inter-Miami story, probably would have been the MLS story of the weekend. Very true there. Well, Chris Whittingham, thanks as always for joining me. Fun soccer talk. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break. The Brazilian League just started, and you can stream all the games on Fanatis, live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, Ata Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Tom Statham. Our guest now is Tom Statham. He's a longtime Manchester United Academy coach with some interesting connections in the United States. And he hosts a really good new podcast called the Go Play Soccer Podcast. Tom, congrats on the podcast, which I've really enjoyed listening to, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome, Grant. It's it's nice to be on. Thanks for asking me. Uh, first off, how long have you been an academy coach at Manchester United? What ages do you work with, and, and what's the main focus of your job there? So I began at Manchester United in January of 1994, so that's over 27 years ago. 
Um, wow. So I was at I, I was at university. I went to Loughborough University um, in England, which is you know the top sports university we like to say. And uh, I was there with Paul McGuinness, whose father was the the manager after Sir Matt Busby. And uh, I went and played professionally after university, which is a slightly different um, route, really. So I, I was a professional footballer at Middlesbrough. And then um, once that ended quite quite soon, I wasn't really good enough. I did what, what I intended to do anyway by going to university, went into teaching and coaching. And Paul had uh, just got the job as director of the Centre of Excellence, as it was then at Manchester United. And, and he asked me to, to come along and, you know, on a trial basis, really, uh, for the end of that season. And I've been there ever since. So 27 years, I've, I started off uh, working with the, the sort of 12, 13, 14 year olds, because at that time, Manchester United really only had one team in the academy with the under-16s. It, it, was, it was so small. Paul was the only full-time member of staff um, and the sessions were taken by the reserve team coach, Jimmy Ryan, and the youth team coaches, Eric Harrison and, uh, and Pop Robson. And myself, Paul McGuinness, Tony Whelan was part-time at that, that time as well. That was it. That, that was all the academy consisted of, um, which compared now to the there's probably hundreds of people employed, you know, when you think of all the coaches and the physios and doctors and analysts and, and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, the, at that time, you could only sign a boy on his 14th birthday. So all the all the kids that we coached at th- those ages were just playing local football. They were playing for the school team, for the town team, district team, club teams. And then if when when they came 14, if Manchester United wanted to sign them, then that's what they did. So all the all the legendary class of '92 players like Beckham and Giggs and and Nicky Butt and the, the Neville brothers, all, all those they they signed at 14. Um, whereas now we can sign kids at eight. So uh, there's wow. a big difference. Big difference in the way you know. There's been a lot of changes in 27 years, Grant. And are, am I right in saying that more in more recent years you've worked with younger ages than previously? Yeah. So. Say so at the time in '94, we just had the one team. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't involved in that team. And then, as time progressed, a couple of years, we started having an under 14s team, and then we had an under 12s team. That, that I took the under 12s team probably in about '96, '97 that time, and from that time until uh, 2002, um, I, I was working with the under 12s. And, and my first under 12 team had Phil Bardsley in it, who's just ending his career now at Burnley and things like that. And uh, so, you know, it's that long ago. And Alex Bruce, Steve Bruce's son, was in that. So uh, I did under 12s for about five years. And then in 2002, Paul McGuinness had a chat with me and said, look, they were looking to redevelop the the under nines programme, especially, but that, that foundation age nines, tens, elevens. And um, Tony Whelan was, was going to head that up, really. And a guy called Rennie Mullenstein who obviously has, has gone on to do great things as well. He was coming in and he was going to be the skills coach to work on the, the pre-academy kids, so the six, seven, eight-year-olds, and then with the under-nines and tens as well. So uh, my role changed to, to work alongside Rene and Tony and develop that foundation phase program. And you talk about foundation phase. I mean, like, like what's your day-to-day like in terms of how often do you do you work with the kids? How, like how many hours a week? You know, what are you doing? Well, my role's always been part-time. Um, so I've 
I was teaching at the very beginning and then since 2000 I've had my own business so since 2000 I've run my own business that um, does soccer coaching and camps and, and I run tours and tournaments and, and things like that so I've always been part-time so I generally would do um, a couple of sessions in the week so at the moment we do Monday and Wednesday evenings with the the under nines and tens and uh, and then at the weekend the kids usually in Saturday and Sunday, but uh, again, because I've been so long, I, I only have to do one day. So I, I get to, I tend to do Sundays um, and not both days. Um, so that's a bit of a, a privilege for the old guy. Um, so yeah, it's but the kids are in the kids are pretty much in four times a week. Okay, and and who are some of the big Man United player names or players elsewhere that listeners would know whom you've worked with at the academy over twenty seven years and and. Were there any particular things you saw in them at a young age that told you these players are potentially going to make it at one of the world's biggest clubs or as professionals elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the very first player that I saw that went on to play for the first team was Wes Brown. Mm-hmm. And so, the, again, this is probably quite early on in my time there in 1994. Wes was at Lillishaw, which was the, the FA ran a school at Lillishaw. So for his la- for his when he was 14, 15, 16, that's where Wes went. And so he wasn't based in Manchester regularly. So in the holidays, he'd come back and and play during the holidays. And I remember during one of the school holidays, I was walking around a pitch and I was by the goal and Wes tracked someone back and tackled them just by the, the goal line. Ball went out for a corner. And the way he hit this kid, you know, Wes would be out 15 then, was like nothing I'd ever heard really. And, it, and he, that immediately got my attention. So I then went on to see Wes play for the first team, he was the first lad. I mean, I didn't have a great deal to do with Wes Brown at that time, but he was the first young player that I'd seen in training sessions and had had a little bit to do with that then walked out on the pitch at Old Trafford. And I remember it was in 1998 in a, in a Champions League game against Barcelona and he walked out onto the pitch and I was watching him and I was thinking, wow, you know, I've actually, you know, I've known that kid since he was 14. But, but since then, you know, the big... Big names at the moment, like Marcus Rashford and, and Mason Greenwood, Scott McTominay, um, those guys in the first team at the moment, Axel Twanzebe and and uh, and all those those guys. Um, you know, I've known them since they were eight years old, and they're doing <laughs> great now. Um, but other guys like Johnny Evans is a, is one that that I put alongside Wes Brown and, and Marcus Rashford and, and Mason Greenwood of kids that you knew even at eight, nine, ten years old that these guys were going to do it. Um, I remember we went to the Dallas Cup in 1999 and with the under-12s, and Johnny Evans was part of that group, and he was he was 10 at the time. And we, got, we had a great team, Grant. We had not only Johnny Evans, we had the likes of Danny Weber, we had Danny Guthrie, Richie Jones, we had um, Nicky Adams, and we had lots of lads that went on and played professional football, but we got knocked out in the group stage. So it just wow. shows that my coaching wasn't the best at that time. But, <laughs> but Johnny, I remember saying to Johnny at the end, he was all upset we got knocked out. And I remember saying to him, don't worry, because you'll play for the first team. You know, and, and he thankfully did that. Unfortunately, he, he's at Leicester City now. Um, I wish he was still a Manchester United player. But, you know, those are guys that, that really had star quality. Marcus was even though he was, he was quite a small lad, you know, he was he was quite a quiet lad, and I used to just call him superstar when he was a little kid, and he just want to come. And I, my my style is very 
much trying to make the kids laugh and make them feel comfortable and share a joke with them and I'll, I'll sing a little song to them to try and make them feel comfortable and you know we always obviously in non-covid times we shake hands with the kids all the time when they arrive and it's very important that that initial greeting but with Marcus he was he had his game face on right from the start and uh, I'd say how are you doing superstar and what are you doing at school today and he just he just wanted to play you know so um but those kids were were outstanding and Mason Mason was probably you know as, as an eight-year-old kid he was phenomenal he's you know the best eight-year-old kid I've I've seen and he's doing amazing things now in the first team but there was there was some of the other lads that that you know were maybe not as obvious um some someone like Ryan Shawcross who plays for Inter Miami now Ryan was he was he was a tall lad but he was he was quite quiet and quite timid really um as a as a sort of 10 11 12 year old and uh he there's no way you would think that he would go on to have a great career as a as a center back and that just shows you that you need to be patient with with some of the kids and and nurture them and and not make snap decisions on them um it's kind of interesting to me if you have an 8 year old Marcus Rashford or an 8 year old Mason Greenwood and on the one hand you could tell at the time that these eight-year-olds were going to be professional players someday. But on the other hand, they're still eight years old. Like, how did how do you balance that and, and treat them as kids? You mentioned a little bit of, of sort of how you approach things. Like, you're not making this a hardcore professional environment at age eight. Right. No, absolutely not. And although, I mean, you couldn't tell for sure that these guys were going to make it because there's lots of things can happen. I mean, you think of someone like Ravel Morrison, who was right. every bit as good as, as these guys um, at a young age. But obviously there are other factors that, that made his path not so easy. And, and obviously he's not had the career that we would hope for. But but you're right. When you're dealing with kids that are eight, nine, ten years old, like I am quite regularly, is the key thing is to recognise that they're children, and a lot of a lot of coaches that that I see uh, working with that age age group, uh, they, they deal with them like they're young adults, and you know they're miniature adults basically, whereas they're not their kids. And so it's very important to firstly respect their childhood because only every, everyone only gets one childhood, and so it's it's vital that they look back on their time uh, and and they think that was the best time of my life. Really, you know that's a I want, I want when they come to, to training sessions with myself and the other guys that I work with at Manchester United, that this has got to be the, not just the best part of their day, but the best part of their week and, and really the best part of their life. So that, you know, we, we've got that responsibility to, to really nurture the love of the game because these kids have a phenomenal love of the game. They just, you know, they, they just want to come and play and, and the joy and the pleasure that they get and they give. From, from the way they go about it is really special. And that that's something that must be nurtured. You have a real connection to the United States over the years as well. Could you explain to our listeners that story? Yeah, well, my mum my actually lives in the States. And so from when I was at university, I used to go over um, to the Chicago area where, where she lived at the time. I'd spend like Christmas and summer holidays there. And I got friendly with some people and uh, played a little bit. I actually played for the Chicago Power when I was at university. So nice. they were an indoor team. And they, for a summer, they they played outdoor. So I, I played with um, a group that we went, we, we toured around. We went to Memphis, we went to Columbus. 
um, all in a in a van, and there was very a, a huge divide because there was there was myself, there was a guy called Brett Hall that went on to to coach. I think the the US national girls team or the ladies team, sorry, that uh, he was involved in that, and and there was Brett, and there was a, a couple of brothers, Richardson brothers, and uh, the goalkeeper um, was called Simpson, I believe. That that we were, I I hung around with those guys, you know, the American guys, and we were all, you know. Anglo-Americans and then the other half of the team were all South Americans and Eastern Europeans mm -hmm. so for me at that stage I played at left back and I had a cannon of a left foot so I was used to playing in England where I'd get the ball and I'd hit about you know a 60-yard ball up to the centre forward that's the way we played in England you know get the ball forward you know it's charge you know it's very direct I wasn't I, mean, I played at a lower league you know I played it at what's now the conference level, the fifth, the fifth tier of English football, really. So it was lower league stuff for me, and uh, you know, and so we played with this guy who was called Batado, I believe. He was Brazilian. He was a centre forward. He's about four foot eight. So I was just shelling the ball up to him, and he was giving me so much abuse because he didn't want to get involved. You know, it's about ninety degrees, and I'm shelling these balls for him to chase in the channel. And he hated me. And then I got the Eastern Europeans and the Mexican guys in midfield that were showing short and just wanted the ball rolled to them. And I was missing them out. And so basically everyone hated me, apart from the American guys. Everyone hated me. And so it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But it was a real culture. It was a real culture difference. We didn't, there wasn't much conversation off the field between between uh, you know the the Anglo-Americans and the Eastern Europeans and the South Americans. And over the years, you've stayed connected to the United States. I mean, like, like yeah. how often do you get over here? What are some of the things you've done with the soccer community over here? Yeah, well, the, the, the link with Chicago has, has stayed. Um, so when I started my own business in 2000, that's when I started coming over and doing soccer camps. Um, so that when the English season finished in sort of late May, uh, I'd come over in June, do some soccer camps there um, and, you know, really get to know the people in that area in the Chicago. I go to downtown Chicago to the Taste of Chicago that used to be a great event I used to love that tasting all the food down there and uh, you know it's just been amazing to see how soccer in the States has developed from that time because when, when I first went in 2000 you know soccer was so low profile and uh, I remember that I took over some pictures of the Manchester United players um, it would be you know say early 2000s 2000 2001 and I was giving the, the kids that attended my camp, I was giving them these pictures and they didn't have a clue who the players were. And uh, one of them is David Beckham. And I was saying, look, this is David Beckham. And at the time in England, David Beckham was probably the most famous person in the country. You know, he was captain of England. United had done the treble in 99. You know, he'd, he'd done all these sort of things. He'd scored the goal against Greece that got us to the 2002 World Cup. And he was just legendary status, really. And... I was saying, but the kids didn't know who he was. And I was saying to them, look, this is like the English Michael Jordan. And that put it into context for them. Whereas now, you know, the, the kids, when I go over to do camps in the States, then, then they don't know, they know more than me. They, you know, they, they know more than me about the Manchester United players and all the Premier League players and Spanish football and Bundesliga. And so I think the way that, that soccer has grown in the States um, from a, from a media point of view, you know, the coverage that, that there is now um, is, is quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this on Friday, May 14th. Just yesterday, ESPN announced a new eight-year deal with the Spanish League that is going to you know, make 
the Spanish League even more high profile in the United States. And that's the case now for the Premier League and Champions League, Bundesliga, you know, Serie A. It's, it's pretty incredible now how easy it is to watch soccer on American television. It is. And, and, I, and I, do a, I do a tour as well. You know, I get teams come from the States and tour England and I organize tours all through the year. And again, in the early days that I did that, you get some guy and you say, oh, I'm a Chelsea fan. This American guy, hey, I'm a Chelsea fan, all this sort of stuff. And you'd say, okay, well, you know, oh, what do you think of Frank Lampard then? And he'd, he'd not have a clue who Frank Lampard was. You know, it's that, he, so, you know, you're not really a Chelsea fan then, are you? Because, you know, whereas now, like I said, the, the adults as well, the parents that maybe didn't even play, but they are really into it and they'll know all the players and, and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's fantastic. It's great. So I, I'm really enjoying your Go Play Soccer podcast. And I'm wondering, how did you decide to start doing it? And I'm sort of fascinated that you put the name soccer in it instead of football. Could you explain how it all got going? Yeah, well, I've, I've had this idea for a while. I've listened to podcasts for ages. And because of I've been at United a long time. I've known a lot of people, not just at Manchester United, but throughout football and throughout the world in that way. And and there are some interesting conversations that I've had over many years with people and especially with some of the older scouts at Manchester United. And unfortunately, one or two of them have now died. And I I really regret that I didn't have a conversation with them. Some of the things that as a young coach they were telling me and I just would... uh, I thought that it should be documented, really. So that was a sort of inspiration to get some of these conversations that I was having documented so they'd be there for, for everyone and share them with everyone. So I've, I've added this idea for a few years, but I'm really bad on technology and I, I didn't know how to do it. Um, and before Christmas, I really started to, to I'm going to do it. And, and some of the guys that I work with at the, the club were really kind and, and they tried to help me out. And I was going to call it um, Sporting Childhoods because I'm really interested with working with very young players. I've, I've read a lot of autobiographies. I'm really interested in what people do at a very young age and that balance between structured play and free play and parents involvement and, and all this sort of stuff. And the more I read about it, I read like Dennis Law's autobiography where he dribbled a ball to school every day. And if he didn't have a ball, he dribbled a tin can. And and speaking to, to one of the, the guys that was a mentor of me earlier, Jimmy Ryan, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, he used to play in, in Scotland. He was brought up in Scotland. And these people used to play all the time, you know, or every spare minute. And one of the guys that I had on my podcast recently, Nemanja Matic, is a first team player at Manchester United. He, he was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was the same. He played all the time. He, he didn't even go home from school. So he, you know, I remember saying to him, did you, you know, you went home from school and then you went out and played. He said, I didn't even come home from school. Went straight from school straight to the field to play and so I've always been interested in in this part of people's lives so I was going to call it sporting childhoods but because techno- technologically I'm so bad I do a lot of work with a, a company in Boston called Go Play that organizes tours to England and different parts of the world and I I arrange the the fixtures and coaching sessions for all the teams that come over from the states with Go Play to England I I, I do that football side of it so I've got a good relationship with them and I was chatting to to Darren um, who who I work with there and explaining this and and he said well we'll do we'll we'll produce it so basically I get to do my chats and then Darren and Go Play do all the editing and and put it all out and you know it goes out as the Go Play Soccer podcast so it's it's soccer because it's it's really aimed at, at the US as well as as the UK um, 
so yeah, that that's how it came about. You know, it's interesting because even on on Twitter, every week of the year, I still have people respond to me with tweets saying it's called football. Yeah. <laughs> and and my whole approach has always been we all love the sport. I don't care what you call it, and I will respect whatever you say. Football, soccer, football, calcio, whatever. Um but it still strikes me that there is, especially in England, actually, a, a real resistance to the word soccer and, and the whole history. It's actually from England originally. It's, uh, sure. you know, for association football. Um, <laughs> do you get any stick or is it just the Americans like me who get stick for using the word soccer? Because you have soccer no. in the name of your podcast. No, I, I, no one in England is interested. No one, certainly no one at United is interested in my podcast. So, you know, they've heard what I'm talking about. They've heard it a million times. So there's, there's no one gives me any stick there. Um, but no, I, I agree. England, especially people don't really, when you talk about football, they don't really use the word soccer very often. So if I were, if I were to be at Manchester United chatting to one of my colleagues there and I said, um, you know, we're going out to do some soccer now. They, they'd give me a really strange look. In fact, one of the things that I, I haven't done it for a while, I did a group a couple of years ago, really with the under 10s that I was with, the, the group really used to like it before the, I used to go, hey guys, I used to go in before the game. To, this is my serious team talk. And uh, I'd just say, hey guys, you want to play soccer? Do you want, and I'd go around there, you want to play soccer? You want to play soccer? And, and at first they looked a bit, like mad at me but they got into it and then they were sort of giving the american accent back um but that get you know that gets back to the style that i like to use of, of making it you know, relaxed and fun but so i'd use soccer as a, as a fun way and some of the kids would actually say it's not soccer it's football like this at me so they get upset about it too so i think i think soccer is, is a word in england that, that people don't use very often at all yeah when when they're talking about the beautiful game uh, um now, a lot of your podcast guests so far have been people from other clubs besides Man United. Could you explain to our listeners some of the topics you've addressed so far in the podcast? Yeah, so I've had on um, some coaches from Liverpool, a guy, Martin Diggle, that, that uh, he worked for the FA for a long while. He's now, he's now at Liverpool. Um, a guy, Ross Brooks from West Ham, who who's, works with the foundation phase. So I know Ross through that connection. And we talked about foundation phase football. Um, but Nemanja Matic is obviously one of our first team players. You know that was a that was a really good one to do. Um, but a, a recent one that I did was with Paul Davis, um, who used to play for Arsenal. He played over four hundred times for Arsenal in the eighties and nineties, and he works now for the the Football Association in in England. And he's really concerned with a lot of the the, the matters of diversity and uh, representation and inclusion and things like that. And a gentleman called Paul Cleal, who's an advisor to the Premier League. You know, those two are on that, that podcast as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in not just, it's, it's sort of a coaching, I, I talk to a lot of coaches, but I'm interested in lots of other areas as well. And there was one, we haven't put it out yet, I think it'll go out next week. Uh, we talked about the, the 4v4 project that I was a part of, like when I said before, in 2002, when I moved to the foundation phase age group, it was to do a study as well. We, we partnered up with a university in Manchester to study the the difference between eight aside football and four aside football for for eight nine year old kids because we believe that they should play four v four 
And uh, so Manchester Metropolitan University and a guy called Rick Fanolio, they, they headed up this study for us. And uh, so I did a podcast recently with Rick and we revisited that. And uh, that, that's going to come out next week. So that was really interesting to, to look back on that because I think that study has had a big impact on on football today, really. A lot more small-sided games for, for young kids. Interesting. I'll look forward to that one. So I've been to Manchester a bunch of times over the years for work trips, reporting visits, uh, been to Man United, been to Man City, different places. But I remember on one of my visits to Manchester when I went to Man City, they had clearly also invested a lot in their academy. How competitive is it between clubs, even between United and City, to land young players for your academies are there any situations in which kids of big names at Man City have joined the United Academy or vice versa? Not really. It's not. It's not. Doesn't happen very often. No, um, because when you when a boy signs at an academy, it's if the academy wants to keep him, it's quite difficult to get him away. You have to pay money, you know. And it, and this is where you get into the situation where it's not ideal. I don't think that. In order to sign the best eight-year-olds, you know, we, we sign kids at eight-year-olds. Manchester City, every club in the country signs kids at eight years old. So if you're going to sign the eight-year-olds that you want, you've got to compete in the market for six- and seven-year-old kids. And, you know, that <laughs> there's a lot about that that's not right. And especially if you look, I mean, I'm a big follower of American sports, uh, NFL and, and baseball especially. And I love the draft. They just had the NFL draft recently. And I followed that. And you've got... You've got these franchises in the NFL that put millions of pounds of whole departments scouting and analysing these guys that are in their early 20s to see. And you get first round draft picks that are busts. They don't make it. And you're talking about guys that are 22, 23. Well, if that's going on there, how can you possibly predict? You know, we talked earlier about some of the lads that have made it, but how can you predict eight, nine, 10 year old kids if they're going to do it? So to me, it puts a lot of pressure on families it puts a lot of pressure on boys when you are seven eight years old and you've got some of the biggest clubs in the world you know if you live in the northwest of England and you're a top seven year old footballer then you'll have Manchester United Manchester City Liverpool and all the other clubs you know that you're talking about the three top clubs but obviously you've got other massive clubs like Everton Blackburn Rovers Burnley you'll have everyone knocking on the door and that that can be quite negative for a, for a young kid. Sure. And how does that work? Do you have to get involved in that or are you able to sort of stay I'm not, out of it? I'm not personally involved in that because that, that we have a pre-academy. All the, all the clubs will have a pre-academy where you'll have scouts and you'll have coaches that will run that system. Um, and we get we get involved a little bit as, as they get towards signing time. In fact, this Sunday is the signing day. So this Sunday... Um, the kids are going to be signing for for Manchester United for next year's under nine. So sometimes we'll get involved. Uh, our opinion will not not really because of the COVID situation. It's not been possible this year, but um, we'll we'll get involved a little bit with you know looking at the players and and trying to you know trying to predict who, how, how these kids going to progress. So it's I think it's very difficult. It's very difficult to do and say getting put in that situation. Where you've got you've got to decide as a as an eight year old, do you sign for Manchester City or do you sign for Manchester United? You know that that's that's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. But it's very it is very competitive. It's very competitive, and uh, you know I think I, I think there there has to be a better system out there. But I don't see it changing just because 
that's the way it is and and the clubs have got all the power and and you know I don't think if, if Manchester United would say well we're not going to sign any kids under nine because we don't think it's right then everyone would go to all the other clubs and you know it'd be very difficult to recruit players then I'm just kind of curious you know Man United started a women's first team fairly recently only mm. um is there anything happening at the youth development stage with women's players as the women's game has started to get more investment and started to grow in England? Or is it still really early for that? Do you mean, is there a crossover with the boys and the girls? Is that what you yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, there isn't. There's the, I know that some of the, they're called RTCs, like regional talent clubs. Um, so Manchester United is an RTC and, I know that at the younger age groups, the girls play, um, they play boys teams. So at a very young age, so the Manchester United under 10s, I believe, will play um, boys under 10s or, or under 9s and things like that. So there's a crop, but there'll be grassroots clubs. There won't be, there won't be um, academies. So there's no crossover there. But it's something I, I'm involved again with, with tours and tournaments for girls. And so I, I see... Firstly, how good the American girls are, but also, you know, I run events where the Manchester United girls are involved, Arsenal, um, Sunderland, Aston Villa, all these clubs. So I get to see their girls and, and they're phenomenal. They're, they're fantastic. You know, they really, really are. The, the level of football is quite incredible. And I think, again, you talk about the word soccer not being popular in England. Well, girls football in England was really not popular and, and not respected at all until recently. And I, and I do think the last two, three years that people are starting to understand that, that girls soccer or girls football, as you want to say, is, uh, is really serious. And there's some fantastic players out there. Now, as someone like you who has knowledge of, of UK player development and US player development in soccer, what do you see right now as some of the big differences between the two countries in that area? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question because that's changed hugely. I would say going back 20 years when I first went to the States, the American kids were very physical, you know, physically big and strong and technically really poor. And the and the way that the game was played was very basic. And and they as we said before, they didn't know much about they didn't watch much football, they didn't know much about football. So their knowledge of the game, game understanding it was really poor as well. But physically, you know, I had some great athletes and that, that's changed a lot. So now, as we said, with the media involvement and the TV, they're watching a lot of games, they're watching a lot of football. So their, their knowledge is improving a great deal. Um, technically, the, the programmes that a lot of the clubs are putting in now, you know, are, are really strong. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, technically the American kids are, are catching up really. Uh, so I'd, I'd say... It's a lot closer than it, well, yeah, definitely a lot closer than it was 20 years ago. The biggest difference to me would still be that culture, would still be the fact that in England, you know, football is the biggest sport by a long way. You know, there's cricket and, and rugby and, and so on. There's tennis, golf and things. But these are relatively minor sports, whereas everything that goes on in the media in England is focused on football. So if you're a, if you're a kid that's interested in sport, if you're a kid that's interested in football, Growing up in England, it's saturated. It's wall to wall. You know, you wake up in the morning, it's on the radio, it's on the TV, it's in the newspapers. Everyone's talking about it all the time. It's always talk, you know, it's always football. Whereas in the States, you've still, that's diluted by right. basketball, American football, baseball, and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's definitely improving. 
but I don't think you can you can really improve on the culture that we've got here, like in Spain and in Brazil. You know, you you can't compete with that if you're every day just soaking that up. You're learning without even knowing it, aren't you? You know, you just you know you, you're having conversations with your dad, your family, your friends, everything, and, and in those conversations, you're just learning and learning and learning. So it's it's sort of that that hidden learning and that hidden development that that is outside of training sessions that you it's difficult to replicate in the states yeah that makes sense just to wrap up here i'm curious when do you think you'll get to the united states next i know we're ending up you know COVID. hopefully fingers crossed is is we're in the end stages uh when are you hoping to get back to the u.s i'm hoping next month <laughs> I'm hoping. oh wow so um you know i've got I usually go over and say do some camp work, but even just to to visit friends and so on. You know that it's part of my routine. You know, every June I go to the state, play golf. I love playing golf in the states because it's warm. You know, it's so much nicer to play golf when <laughs> when you got shorts on and it's like ninety degrees and the ball flies a lot further. Whereas you know, I, I play at my local club and you you smash it and it's raining and it's windy and you know you've got four layers of, of clothing on. So. Um, you know, it, obviously there are problems at the minute. I hope Mr. Biden um, lets us come over and, and opens that up. And if he does, then you know I'll be I'll be going over to the states next month. Um, but other than that, I, I, I maybe in my, in my relationship with Go Play, they're based in Boston, so I've been over and, and worked with some of the clubs in Boston. The Boston Bolts come over to my tournament, so I've been over to do some work with them as well. So. Hopefully very soon. Tom Statham has been a Manchester United Academy coach for 27 years. He's also hosting the terrific new podcast, the Go Play Soccer Podcast. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Tom Statham as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.